0: Hi, this is Tamsin Granger.
1: This is Dan Abouhaf. With
0: Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. It is Sunday, May twelfth.
1: Pouring rain. Two
0: thousand nineteen. Right. Mother's Day.
1: Oh yeah, Mother's Day.
0: Pouring rain. So all all a person can do is really put her feet up and snuggle by the fire. (laughs) (laughs) There is no gardening to be done today. Yeah, right. Um, Happy Mother's Day.
1: Happy Mother's Day.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah, kind of a bleak day.
0: Yeah. I shouldn't uh, even be doing this. It should be my day off. I,
1: I could do it myself if I okay. want, but no, okay. no one's going to listen. And, you know, I don't bring in the fans like you do.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. All right, let's make it short and right, so, sweet. What do you got?
1: We uh, Of course, we went to the theater this week. We saw High Button Shoes, High Button Shoes and Encore's presentation, the concert version, in which they take uh, musicals from a long time ago and do a weekend set of performances. High Button Shoes...
0: Uh, G. <laughs> Willikers, I hope no one was listening last week when you exhorted them to go. I didn't tell them to go. I said it you might did. be worth it oh. How could oh. I tell them
1: to go? I hadn't
0: seen it. I hadn't seen it. Oncores always does a good job, I, he says. I, yeah, I'm going to have to
1: dial that back. Um, notwithstanding the review in the Times was called it fizzy <laughs> and affable, of which uh, that was the headline. The body of the review said nothing like that as the time sometimes does. So High Button Shoes, <laughs> a show that took place, I guess was put on in the late 40s, ran for a long time, at, was successful, ran for more than Brigadoon. <laughs> it was like, I don't know why. Uh, it, it's about these con men, um, oh, a con man, and sort of a partner who sort of uh, wreaks some kind of havoc, mild havoc, I'll call it. In the New Jersey area, that was novel. They were talking about Rutgers and New Brunswick and even Princeton to some degree.
0: The old Raritan.
1: Right. And they made it down to uh, Atlantic City. So uh, Jersey, uh, a lot of props to New Jersey. Um, Here's the short story on this. Um, It was uh, written by uh, Sammy Kahn and the music by Jules Stein. Jules Stein is a much admired Broadway uh, composer. I mean, Sammy Conn did a lot of great Frank Sinatra songs, wrote the words. Uh, as for Broadway, Jules Stein wrote, as we well know, um, he wrote Gypsy, one of the great classics beyond you know any possible challenge, and uh, wrote Funny Girl, and I know to your mind, wrote the greatest of the television musicals, which of course was Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. So uh, we celebrate Jules Stein in our household. We like Jules. But uh, this was his, one of his early attempts, and uh, not so successful. Is that fair?
0: Um, it, 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 we did not enjoy it.
1: <laughs> yeah, the music wasn't great. I, How's I can that? speak for
0: myself, and yeah. uh, you didn't seem that happy about it either. <laughs> uh, but it, it seemed to be a vehicle for uh, Phil Silvers.
1: Yeah, that's or exactly right. Phil
0: Silvers is the guy who made it work. Exactly right. Um, and uh, they had uh, the guy they had star- starring in this presentation, Michael Urie, Funny guy, but did not have that great, vaudevillian, uh, Brooklyn-born, je ne sais quoi of Phil Silvers. Yeah. Uh, You know, just a wonderful, sleazy sort of con man. uh, Always, uh, you know, always charming everybody, but always on the con, always on the make. Exactly. The
1: driving, relentless energy of Phil Silvers.
0: uh, somehow... You just wasn't able to make that happen. But
1: Well, well, let's let's just... Can we get 30 seconds at Phil Silvers? Because not everyone knows Phil Silvers like we do. And I was I was happy to know that you were highly aware of Phil Silvers. I wouldn't, didn't want to assume it, but you are. You're younger than I am, let's face it.
0: I loved Sergeant Bilko.
1: Okay, Sergeant Bilko. I loved was, it.
0: And, of course, I only saw it in reruns. Uh, I just right. uh, looked up on the computer. It started in, you know... It was late uh, 50s. When I was a little peanut. A peanut, uh, yes. In the mid-50s, actually. And, um... But the reruns were always on. Right. And I just loved him. Right. I found him hilarious. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so Phil Silver started as sort of a uh, vaudeville type performer. That's actually, I think the article that we looked at said that he started basically singing at uh, movie theaters when the projection stopped, projectionist stopped working because uh, they had technical problems. That was his original job in 1920 or so. And he worked his way up the circuit, the vaudeville circuit, and, uh, then he, uh, got some jobs on Broadway as a comic. And his, he did this show, High Button Shoes, but it's not really one of his major deals. His major deal, first major deal was a few years after that, uh, in which he played, uh, in Top Banana. It was basically the story of the Milton Berle television show in a comic way. And he was mm-hmm. playing the Milton Berle character. Uh,
0: I feel like I've heard you talk about Top Banana I saw Top Banana. Okay. Uh,
1: I you saw. Did. I saw a revival of it, the Westbury Music Fair, but who was in it but Phil Silvers.
0: Oh, my God. And,
1: uh, you know, if you want to be a Top Banana, you got to start at the Do bottom you, of the bunch. You yes, you really know Phil oh, I saw Phil. Phil. Silvers. Oh, I know Phil Silvers. And then Phil Silvers, and this to me is a very interesting story. Um, Phil Silvers, he was in Do Re Mi, which we've seen, which is also better than High Button Shoes. But uh, then when... Uh, Steve Sondheim wrote Funny Thing. He wanted to cast the main part as Phil Silvers. He wrote it for Phil Silvers. Mm-hmm. And Phil Silvers turned him down. So he had to get Zero Mostel. And of course, Zero Mostel was made a tremendous success.
0: Why did he turn him down?
1: I, I don't know. But he, he, he did the show on Broadway and then Mostel did the movie. But Silvers felt so bad about turning it down. He appeared in the movie as a secondary character. I was going to say. As I remember or something seeing like him. that. Yeah
0: yeah. The, yeah. yeah. I think, um, I think he actually plays, uh, Mostel's boss or owner or whatever. Well,
1: yeah. It's not, yeah. I don't remember exactly, but it's a secondary role. And, and, but that's how much he wanted to be a part of it. He felt so bad about that's, turning it down. Didn't but, he
0: sing Everybody Ought to Have a Maid?
1: No. That's somebody else. But, but quite apart from that. Quite apart from that, it's a guy named Jesse Abrams or something. But but quite apart from that, here's what here's the funniest part. Later, the revived funny thing on Broadway, Phil Silvers takes the part then and gets a Tony for Best Actor in a Musical then for doing funny thing. All right, but and he, of course you saw him in the movies in Mad 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 Mad, Mad World.
0: Yes, I was about ten oh, at the time. I don't they want to give away a Anyway,
1: so Phil Silvers was always playing. Phil I know, Silvers. I
0: know. I definitely knew him growing up. Right. He was a household name. So
1: driving, relentless. Right. Enough about him. Without him, and this it,
0: musical did not fly. Michael Urie
1: is not Phil Silvers. Right. And that was their only chance. They couldn't get Phil. Although I will tell you, I know about 15 real estate lawyers who could have played the part. So uh, they could have found somebody else. Really? Yes.
0: That's hilarious. You, you know, the other thing is, I think it's just uh, not a great musical. Yeah. No, uh, not a great musical, and, not uh, a great production. I think it's leaning heavily on nostalgia for those high-button years. The- well, well you, leg of muttons
1: You said something that they said in Times Review which is exactly right which I thought was an extremely remote nuanced point but you and the Times were seeing it the same way that there's, it's nostalgia upon nostalgia. It's an old musical that's based on the idea of an older musical. Yeah.
0: It's yeah. kind of nutty. Yeah. And you know it's just uh, but you know again it was right around the time of things like Meet Me in St. Louis right. where people were looking back at that era. Right. But I think the more you're removed from certain eras they're not as nostalgic to you. And uh If you don't, if that doesn't press that button, you've got to have other buttons to push, comedic or fabulous music or something. And uh, I don't think high button had it. So
1: no, that didn't. All right. So then we uh, went last night to a minor league baseball game, which uh, we've done once or
0: twice before, and
1: and we enjoyed that immensely. As we do. People
0: do to celebrate Mother's Day weekend. Is that right? Isn't it? Is it? Isn't it? I mean, it could be. We um, you came up with the idea, yeah. And uh, we were coming from Pennsylvania to the um, Patriots Park, home of the Somerset Patriots. Right. And uh, Nico and Granger met us there. They were on their way back from Brooklyn, and it was mm-hmm. kind of a halfway point. Right. And uh, we met at the park. We paid two dollars to park. To park in the. I sold out
1: for the for the paid parking.
0: Yes. But many, it's actually a ballpark that's attached to a mall. Right. So many people just park in the mall and walk across the street.
1: You go to Target, you park in front of Target, and you cross the street, you're in the ballpark.
0: Right. And you can pick up a few items on your <laughs> the way. the Target. Besides the souvenirs. Look, this
1: couldn't be easier to get to, Right. Uh, it's right off the highway. Right. And for people who live in Somerset or in that area particularly, it's very easy to get to. It couldn't – the parking is right there. It's not hard to right. get out. It costs nothing to park. It costs nothing to go to the game. We got very – we were sitting right behind the dugout. It's $15 a seat. Yeah, $15 right?
0: for a I, third row.
1: I mean, I thought they were going to ask you to pinch hit. I mean, you know, we were right there. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, they had all the ballpark food that you can well imagine. Which uh, you work for yeah, your and they house. had some
0: of the, you know, uh, they had funnel cakes. Yeah. They had Guinness on tap. They did. Uh, they had prosecco in a can. Uh, so uh, everything you could need right. for an outing, and it, we noticed a few things about this, and we had a great time, and there were fireworks and the fireworks said, again, and they were good yeah, fireworks, very good fireworks, right. worth the fifteen dollars alone. But um, what we did notice a lot of families, mm-hmm. a lot of dads with all the kids. And that we all thought might have been a Mother's Day thing—that Right. That mom was getting a night off duty, uh, while uh, dad took care of the kids sure. at the ballpark. And, so and a lot of very really, and
1: very young kids.
0: Very young kids just running and around. And a lot of the um, entertainment seemed aimed at this younger crowd. There yep. were constant little races between mascots, and you know, seven-year-olds. Um, right. Yeah, little contests for. Um, kids from the audience and right. uh, you know throwing T-shirts into the audience, etc. So, um, so it was
1: fun though. It was fun. I, I think we'll we to had go a... again. Well, you know, it's funny. So by total coincidence, uh, I had had pulled an article during the week about another team in that league. Uh, it's, it's an independent league, and the other team is uh, the Long Island Ducks. Uh, and I should say the Somerset Patriots are a pretty successful team, as are the Long Island Ducks. Um, and these are the kind of teams, these are not AAA teams, they're not high minor league teams that are affiliated with major league clubs, but they are sort of an odd collection of players, including uh, former players who are kind of really on the way down, giving it a last shot, but have recognizable names. And the managers are often like that. So the team that played, what were they, the Barnstormers yesterday from Lancaster? right. Yeah, so they were managed by Sparky Lyle, some people remember. They the, were? Yeah. Oh,
0: I, I thought you said that well, uh, maybe, the Patriots you know, were. I'm no, confused. You the might Patriots be. were because we you're, were in you're, the um you're right. gift shop looking at uh, the cards, the player cards. That's right. And yeah. Sparky Lyle. Exactly
1: right. And yeah. uh, my mistake. The Long Island Ducks are managed, according to this article, by Wally Backman. Now, Wally Backman was a guy who played second base for the Mets, a real hard-driving, hard-drinking guy on their championship team in 1986. Uh, and he's uh, controversial. Controversial because he always been a fiery, kind of a throwback-type player and then a manager It was managed in the minor league system for the Mets. Managed players like Jacob deGrom, Noah Syndergaard, Steven Matz, Michael Conforto, get, priming himself for the top job in the major leagues, and he never got it. Why? Because he was a rough guy, because he was off, because he had a... Uh, conviction for uh, for uh drunk driving because there's an episode about domestic abuse. He even had uh, a job for about 15 minutes to manage the Arizona Diamondbacks and they found out about this. Uh, he declared personal bankruptcy. He has all kinds of personal problems. That's what's held him back. And he also can't get along with people, which kind of goes with that. Okay. <laughs> so he's pretty much out of the bigs, except he hasn't given up on it. Yeah. So he's managing the Long Island Ducks and he's the most all-time fire-breathing guy in the world and yet these Teams are the ones that they use to experiment on new systems for the major leagues. So I don't know if you would notice, for example, there was no visiting of the manager to the mound in this game. Mm-hmm. They don't allow that. All okay. Right. Yeah, they're going. Is that a new
0: thing or? An yeah, it's a new league? thing. They're
1: okay. experimenting in these leagues. They're going to have automatic balls and strikes called by a machine later in the season. Whoa! All right. So, whoa! So you whoa, got you got whoa. the oldest old throwback managers like in Sparky Lyle and Wally Backman. They're the ones who are going to be used to experiment with these new things. So it, it's How kind does that of work? It, it's totally weird. But Wally Backman hasn't given up. Sparky Lyle hasn't given up on managing the major leagues, and a lot of those players haven't given up. But it, it was a lot of fun. So.
0: Yes, indeedy. And while we're talking about sports, yes. let's just keep on this note. Yeah. Um, like one of your dream articles, uh, in the New York Times, uh, the, the review section, I think, and written by John Urschel, Math Taught Like Football. And, uh, he is basically recommending that, uh, math teachers could learn a lesson from football coaches. Well,
1: we should say who John Ursul
0: is. Well, you can say who John is. Well,
1: John Russell, uh, He's re- you're reading the article, and you're saying, uh, well, here's a guy who says he was interested in math, and uh, but he played uh, football in high school and growing up in college, and he's comparing his experiences. And you don't realize, unless you know the name or you get through the whole article, he's a professional football player. This is a guy who's the real deal, all right? So he spends three years with the Baltimore Ravens, Right. And he writes an article now saying, I, I'm not a professional football. I'm pursuing my Ph.D. in math. And as at, I,
0: MIT. at MIT.
1: And at as MIT. I look back on it, he doesn't quite say this, but I'm not sure I took the right path. But one of the reasons I took the path I took was because I wasn't coached as enthusiastically in math uh, uh, as I was in football. And why is that? Which you go, what? Well, maybe there's something to that. And I I think there might be something to it. Well, he
0: says he was always interested in math puzzles and, you know, even as a child, interested in logic, uh, et cetera. But the classes in school never engaged him. Right. And uh, so he does end up uh, playing football, going to Penn State, and uh, majoring in math, et cetera. I mean, you almost majored in math. Right. Right? No, but I, I know what he's talking about. I know uh-huh. what he's talking
1: about. I mean, because higher math is different than lower math, all right? Uh-huh. College math is different. And, uh, but what he's talking about is, you know, that, that's a whole very challenging thing. And it, you benefit from a lot of encouragement and engagement and, and even personal engagement on what, what you're doing when you get to more serious mathematics. Uh, and he never he didn't get that early on. He had no clue was the word. Well, once leg. he gets to
0: college, he says, "Until I got to college, I didn't really know what mathematics was." Exactly. And I think you've said the exact same thing to yeah, me right. at some point. Um, but what happens to him is a professor kind of takes him under his wing yeah. and lays out different problems for him, which he you know gets engaged in and solves and begins on this path. And it's because of this professor's personal interest and coaching that, uh, you know, his uh, interest in math survives and blossoms. Um, He notes here, a growing body of research shows that students are affected by more than just the quality of a lesson plan. They also respond to the passion of their teachers and engagement of their peers, and they seek a sense of purpose. They benefit from specific instructions, constant feedback, and a culture of learning that encourages resilience in the face of failure, not unlike football practice.
1: Right. But also, look, I think it makes a very good point, number one. Number two is, uh, that reminded me, you know, when I think of your teaching and what you talk about your teaching experiences. I mean, I'm sure, just listening to you talk and people who listen to this to hear you talk about art. I know that you bring a certain amount of enthusiasm for the subject to it. And that only is conveyed when you're teaching students, but they also get a sense of why this should matter to them.
0: Right. But also, the point he makes about specific instructions, that is something I learned going along. You know, don't don't give these vague uh, um, ideas of what you might want in the paper or whatever. Um, Tell people exactly what you want, and then... Give them feedback about how that measures right. up. Right, me- and football automatically does that. You're running a particular route. You have this to do. You know what the goal is. The you know goal why? is to make you know, that. You know why?
1: Because the coach is investing in the player. Because the coach wants to win.
0: Right, okay. but also, but everybody there knows what the goal is. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. very clear. Yeah. Okay, well, well, they have to do that. Um, That's
1: part of it. Uh, you- and so
0: he he uh, makes a good point, and uh, he sums that up by saying, all good teachers like good coaches. Communicate that they care about your goals. Because exactly. Because you have the same. Well, that's goals what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. Goals.
1: The art too It's right. a, it's a, not a matter of saying I'm was an in art. It's a matter of saying here's why you might be. It's yeah. Art. And
0: it's rarely a matter of having a brilliant, uh, brilliantly written, you know, lesson um, plan lecture right. to make. Uh, it's uh, you know it's making all that land and how do you make it land by developing which is a people interaction. Yeah. Oh, I agree.
1: All right, so, you know, I'm, I'm not usually excited about um, commencement addresses. Not that they're not...
0: I am. I,
1: I know you are... I
0: love those pithy bits of wisdom. I,
1: I do, but they're, 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 at a certain point, there are so many tropes you can have. They're kind of redundant. You hear the same thing every year, of year, or you hear 15 little quotes. At my
0: the... age, I can hear it every year, and it seems perfectly new.
1: Okay, well, I'm story remembering them. But the, there's an article by Jason Gay, The Secret No One Will Tell You. And it's not really presented as a, a commencement address, but it might as well be... And, you know, he covers several things. It's not worth covering all of it, but he makes one point, which I think is a really good point. And that is, and here's the quote, nobody really knows what they're doing. Nobody. And, and, and that to me is actually very important. And it's so true. And I think when you're a young person, and I'm not talking about 18, I'm talking about 28. I'm talking about 35. You don't quite get that. You're sitting in a room with people saying everybody knows what's going on and knows how to do I'm it. I'm clueless. But me. And or and I'm the one who does not get that secret handshake. I'm the one who was sick on the, that day at school. Everyone's got it. No one's got it. Okay? That's that's Especially the
0: not the guys who are saying most loudly that they've got it. Right. Okay. Well, it says
1: even the people who seem like they know what they're doing, they don't know what they're doing or... Everyone is making it up as they go along. I, look, that is just true. And they don't believe you. And it couldn't be more true. He also says another thing that people have to learn to embrace that chaos, get comfortable with not knowing. And he cites some survey where they, or they're surveying people in their 90s about when they're happiest. And they're in the period in their lives. When things were kind of out of control, they couldn't figure out what to do with the kids, they didn't have the money, they didn't know what to do kind of chaos. Right. And they kind of worked it through. And it's a matter of you get comfortable with that. That's through the motions. Those people are not investing in the kind of thinking they have to be doing. The best that have is that you don't know what you're doing because that's what causes you to reexamine right. everything you have to do. That's the secret yourself. You have as good a chance of figuring it out as anybody else. So, I, I thought that resonated. Thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you handed me an article called Why You Should Binge Read right. by Ben Dolman. Because you're a great reader. He's that's an, an author. Why I, you're I'm not reader. a great reader. You're the reader in the but family. I, no, I, uh, that's not at all true. But I have done some serious binge reading lately. Yeah. And he is basically, it's kind of a cute uh, article that compares, you know, binge reading to, you know... Uh, bit, you know, binging on Netflix uh, series, etc. cetera. Um, so I, I guess that what's make, that is what makes it fun. But his basic point is uh, you're doing the wrong thing. If you're just uh, reading something for five or 10 minutes and then going to sleep and then picking it up in another few days and giving it another five or 10 minutes, he said, you got to really get into it and give it a chance and get yourself engaged, yeah. um, which doesn't seem quite like binge reading to me. I think he just wanted to use that phrase, right? Um, but I have done some binge reading. I mean, uh, I, I will do that. I, you know, I fell in love with the Deborah Harkness books, and I read right through them. All right, that's great. Uh, And uh, and it is fun, and it's engaging and rewarding, and you're devastated when it's over, just like you're devastated uh, when you know. It's the finale of uh, whatever series you're watching. Uh, so, you know, there is some uh, um, correlation there. And, but I think hopefully we still have room in our lives for binging in all these different areas, yeah. uh, you know, the small screen and the book uh, and the audiobooks, well, whatever. Look, you got to,
1: I, I, it's a much simpler point to me too, but you got to give it some time. Sometimes, you, you know, something doesn't capture your interest in the first five minutes, it's worth the investment. And, and that, that gives you the chance to get carried away. It's hard. I can tell you because I read bits on the train and sometimes it's not registering with me. Yeah. but when I put on put aside a half hour, it's a different experience. I
0: do have certain books um, that I only read a bit at a time. yeah, and it doesn't bother me. okay, okay? and they're good for that. There's the, the enormously long biography of the artist Thomas Thomas Gainsborough mm-hmm. um, I've been reading forever. Uh-huh. but you know it's a, it's a biography. And so you know, I'm not you know, I'm not going to find out who killed the butler. I'm not anxious to do that, right. but I don't mind the late you know the latest little revelations. Uh, but uh, you know, so there's room for all these approaches. I think. Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. Uh, listen, uh, there seem to be a lot of books about Doctor Zeus. Uh, there's a new one called Becoming Doctor Zeus by Brian uh, J. Jones, and there's a review of it by Megan Cox Gordon in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so it's not worth going over all the details about Dr. Seuss, except for this thing that came to my attention for the first time, is that he started writing children's books. He really started writing children's books because he was uh, – he had a contract with Standard Oil to do some creative writing or writing generally. And uh, What? He, yeah. He worked for Standard Oil. Standard Oil? Oil? Yeah. He, had, he was basically doing illustrations for them. Oh, okay. and, but the exceptions that he was allowed were limited, you know, And but one of the exceptions that applied was children's books. So that's what we got in the children's books. Um, oh, so
0: he couldn't write for anybody else. Right. Because it would be in conflict. Exactly. With his job. Right. But children's books he could write. He could write. Interesting. That's,
1: that's exactly why he did it. Um, but in any event, uh, it came wartime. Um, uh, he. This is just a strange twist. Uh uh, in 1942, film director Frank Capra says recruited Geisel to work for him in a special army unit devoted to producing orientation and morale-raising materials for the wartime troops. And this apparently was a turning point for Geisel. Capra, of course, was a great director, did It's a Wonderful Life and other movies, comic movies, generally.
0: Geisel is Dr. Zeus's. Geisel is name. Dr.
1: Zeus's, yes, sorry. Uh, and this, according to the book, and this is a quote, Capra taught me conciseness, Geisel said. I learned a lot about the juxtaposition of words and visual images. The tight storytelling discipline installed by Capra, according to, uh, Jones, would be formative in shaping Geisel's future art. Well, that's interesting to me because, you know, there are many things that go into making Geisel successful as he was besides the funny drawings. And the idea that Frank Capra, which is a masterful director, was such an influence on, on him and was a turning point in his career. It, it, is It makes perfect sense, and it's just its amazing to me.
0: Well, that is fascinating. And yeah. It just, again, underlines that idea that you you read something like the Dr. Seuss books, Cat yeah. in the Hat, yeah. etc., Green Eggs and Ham, and you don't imagine everything that went into it. Yeah. Uh, they're much more sophisticated Right. It wasn't, boor, it wasn't born and being able to write like that, imagine. and they're very complicated. And, it, and it's really funny because uh, our friend Lisa Walsh is actually working on a uh, children's book at the moment. Yeah. And to listen to all the um, efforts she's going through yeah. and the editing and reworking and rewriting right. and rethinking uh, is just... Uh, well,
1: there is more detail on that here, including that when he wrote the books, he, he had a list of 236 words, limited vocabulary, mm-hmm. children's vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And he limited he would that. only use the words on the 236.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, there's a lot about Dr. Zeus. I mean, that's a whole complex story, yeah. uh, no matter how you look at it. He's a complicated guy. Complicated guy. All right. He,
1: he, yeah, but great. So, here's an, here's an article that explains a lot. And it's, <laughs> it's called, Is Conference Room Air Making You Dumber? It turns out. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. Because it turns out that they say, you know, that every time you walk out of a conference room, it feels a little cooler and you realize it was stuffy in there. Here's what's going on. When you have a conference, even for a relatively short time, there's a buildup of carbon dioxide in the room, which actually has detrimental effects on cognitive functioning.
0: Come on. Don't they have (laughs) ventilation? I know. I could understand I that if, it, if this was 1935 or something, but uh, all these uh, buildings have Here's tremendous the explanation. Uh, recirculation okay. of air and blah, blah, buildings blah. Buildings
1: in the U.S. have grown better sealed in the last 50 years, helping reduce energy used in heating and cooling. That's also made it easier for gases and other substances released by humans to build up inside.
0: So that's why... We're not subject to that because we lived in we live in drafty old houses. Exactly wh- that right. Are not we're on the at top
1: all. of our game because we're not being stuck with carbon That's dioxide. But if you, this explains everything, all the dumb decisions that have been made by every organization over the last thirty years, <laughs> the explanation is that they were made in conference rooms which were filled with carbon dioxide. Now we know.
0: Okay.
1: All right. So another problem solved. Uh, yeah. Bizarre.
0: Wine in a can. Yes um <laughs> <laughs>
1: again talking about uh, the yeah, decisions yeah well uh you know
0: so this is an article in the New York Times and uh it's about uh, some people who have started a company sans wine I don't really get what that means it seems to mean without wine but uh, anyway it's a, um, they founded this company in order because they wanted to be able to have decent wine in a small serving that you could take on a Itnik, or on a hike, all right? Um, and uh, so uh, the discussion is, can you really do it? Um, and it seems possible. Uh, another uh, group that was uh, developing wines did it because uh, they had a pizzeria. They wanted again to be able to serve wine, uh, survey wine by the glass, and yet they find themselves, you know, you know, dumping out. Uh, wine, half a bottle of wine or whatever all the time because it goes bad so they wanted to be able to offer again, kind of single servings and uh, so the Sands Wine Company actually has really high quality you know, interesting sort of good drinkable wines not available here near where we live, I don't think uh, but uh, um, available, uh, I guess, in uh, California, etc. But um, then there are lesser companies that also uh, sell these uh, wines in a can, and a lot of them are quite undrinkable. Um, so it's, I don't know, up for grabs. If you have a 12-ounce can, like a beer can, yeah. of course, for beer, that's a single serving. Yeah. For wine, that's more than a single serving. And uh, it certainly is more alcohol than a beer. Because think about it. Sure. You know, average wine has uh, about 12% alcohol as opposed to, um, you know, most, what, what would you say most beers are more like five or six? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there are even fancier less. craft even beers yeah, with even more. I call it so five, when you drink right. a whole can of that, it's really more than what we would call a single serving of wine. Right. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, it sounds like a pretty good thing. I've actually had Prosecco in a can. Right. Um. At Classic Stage. Right. The little that was, uh, counter right. that serves. That coffee. was a very
1: small can, wasn't it? It wasn't. No. It wasn't twelve ounces.
0: No, I think it was probably eight ounces max. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And of, course, and of course, Prosecco is quite low in alcohol. Right. It's but it's also. Uh, it was quite decent. It was quite drinkable. It's also
1: effervescent. It's it's you know it's it's bubbly. Yeah. Okay. Some so these wines aren't quite, bubbly. I assume, generally speaking.
0: They're, they have both. They, have, they, they, you know, people are working on trying to be able to. Uh, provide all of them. I think the other tricky thing is the expense. They can cost like fifteen to twenty-five dollars. Okay. So twenty-five dollars for a can of anything seems well, yeah,
1: crazy. You're, plus, you're thinking of it like a half bottle of wine. That's the idea. Yes, you say it to me. Sometimes we go out and you want to drink wine, but you're not going to drink a whole bottle. You might go for a half bottle, and that would be a solution. But it's fifteen dollars. Yeah, it seems a lot. Seems a lot.
0: Fifteen dollars. I don't think that's, that's much better. Look, if you buy wine by the glass in a restaurant, it's about $12. these days it's about 12, yeah. $12 to $15. Yeah. Okay. So um, that, that would be That's less, but that's a, that's
1: a restaurant charge, but yeah. Yeah,
0: the restaurant would charge more anyway. So anyway, but anyway, cans have come a long way. They're lighter, they're coated with some kind of polymer inside, so the flavor is not affected by the metal. Yeah. Um, so, you know...
1: It's good they're thinking about this. It, I think they'll, they'll, they'll solve it's it. It's good.
0: It seems, it seems handy, but mm. it, it's still like all the other improvements in wine. The screw top and everything else, people are still snobby about it.
1: Well, do they not make half bottles anymore? Not of good no, wine. No, they
0: do make half bottles, yeah. but it's still, um, isn't a can more should be cheap. A can is more portable.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a can has advantages. but And is it really
0: half a bottle? A half bottle yeah. would be, what, about 15 ounces?
1: Well, if it's 32 A little if,
0: if 32, 15, 16, yeah. 16 ounces. Yeah. So that's like... That's a little more. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll look for that.
1: Um, in terms of obituaries, uh, Jim Fowler died. Uh, Jim Fowler was on Wild Kingdom for years. He's a naturalist. And Wild Kingdom was one of those shows, which I think you watch more than I do.
0: And no, I yeah. never watched that. All right. I, I, Sorry
1: I, I said I'm the it. i person
0: who would see him uh, turn up on the Merv Griffin show or right. the Johnny Carson okay. all right. show. So or, he, the mutual or, or, of all Wild I can't Wild believe he's 80, he was 89.
1: Why would you have thought he was so young? I,
0: I don't know. He just, uh, he always looked ageless.
1: Well, yeah. He, he was a young looking guy. Yeah. He Like Bob Cummings, basically. I mean, he, uh, <laughs> they have pictures of him with various lizards and whatever, and they'll uh, they had tell a story about him being charged you know in this kind that line of business there are moments of peril they describe one situation in which he was uh charged by an elephant and he just ran and he just escaped in a car as he put it you can bluff a male elephant but not a female i, I don't, there's no explanation there uh maybe it's just like humans who knows but uh as you say he was many times on like shows for keep that in
0: mind yes Wherever around uh to- Elephants.
1: Look to see if it's a male or a female before you make your next move. Um, so he's on the Johnny Carson show 50 times. And, you know, people remember the Carson show, and maybe they still do this on these shows. They would have a naturalist. Jim Fowler would come on. He'd have an animal and tow, some strange exotic yeah, animal. Yeah, they still do this. And uh, it would wreak havoc on the set, and it was cause for uh, mirth. Uh, they, they quote one situation here uh, in which um, Jim Fowler brought on the set... A large crane named Stanley, who they had been monitoring and imprinted in some way, and like uh, a large bird, a large bird, yes. Okay. And Fowler explained that uh, because Stanley was imprinted, uh, they can follow him, but he'll pro- for that reason he'll probably never have any courtship behavior because females won't be interested. And Corson responded, "I know exactly how Stanley feels." So there you go. It's a good setup for Carson and uh, Tamsin would have been hysterical, but I told her that joke earlier and she did laugh. But uh, it, you know, it was uh, it was funnier than you would expect it to be. Um, and uh, so he no, passed kid, away.
0: kids and uh, animals are always funny, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, it's not always, but uh, he was good. Yeah,
0: they're pretty. They're pretty dependable. All right. Okay. So last
1: uh, Mother's Day.
0: Well, of course, uh, in honor of Mother's Day, yeah. uh, what, what is it? The Duchess of uh, Sussex uh, gave birth. Right. Meghan Markle. Exactly. Had right. her baby, yes. uh, you know, wonderfully dressed for the photograph. Uh, really cute little bambino in a nice little white cap and uh, swaddle. And uh, so there's lots of excitement. Did you know the name? The name is Archie. Oh. What a great name. Is Isn't it? That a, yeah, it I is. Don't know. And he's not going to have a title. Okay. Oh, no? No. Um, so that makes him more of a normal person. So there's all this excitement. So, of course, there are all these other articles about royal births. And there's quite a wonderful one in the New York Times uh, describing you know, a couple of different uh, stories about royal births. A lot of them sad and weird. In 1688, Mary, the second wife of James II, who was Roman Catholic, announced the birth of a baby boy. For some reason, no one... Thought she she would give birth, mm-hmm. and the Protestants were not happy uh, that there was this new right. Catholic baby uh, in line for the throne, and so they uh, they were spreading the rumor that it couldn't possibly be hers. That somehow a baby was you know smuggled in. Uh, oh, God. Uh, from somebody else. So from then on, there's this whole official entourage of witnesses oh, really? to the <laughs> birth that doesn't stop yeah. until Elizabeth II uh, is about to give birth. And uh, there's Isn't, a whole... Did they
1: say enough of that? Enough
0: of that. Right. Um, well, it, I mean, and uh, then uh, there's a sad story of Princess Charlotte, the only child of George IV, Prince of Wales, who was 21 and a newlywed uh, when she became pregnant. And uh, during the course of her delivery, it's ascertained that the baby is kind of uh, stuck in, uh, you know, the pelvic, you know, whatever. And because her doctor is old school, he refuses to use forceps. Mm-hmm. Wants nature to take its course. Uh, after fifty hours, oh of my labor, god, the child is stillborn. Yeah, and she dies. Yeah. And later, the doctor actually commits suicide.
1: Well, you saw that kind of stuff in Downton Abbey, where uh, you had the old yeah, school apparently doctors. Yeah, these are all stories from yeah. life. And,
0: yeah. the, of course, uh, one of the great uh, birthing queens right. of all time, Queen Victoria.
1: How many children did she have? She well, had time. a zillion. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but in, it was on teens. her. Um, yeah.
0: She was pregnant or nursing for 16 years of her adult life. Um, and she... Um, she considered, uh, pregnancy the shadow side, shot in sight of, um, uh, of marriage and told her daughter that childbirth was a complete violence to all one's feelings of propriety, which God knows receive a shock enough in marriage alone. <laughs> anyway. That's a great uh, line. It was, it was, uh, during this period that, uh, they developed chloroform, yeah. which uh oh, yeah, I you know, that, yeah. was known to have uh, anesthetic yeah. you know, qualities, and uh, you know could greatly Im- improve your labor experience. I understand it. Her doctors didn't want her to use it because a it would you know slow labor, right. which is what they always tell you. Oh yeah, you yeah you can have um, some pain relief, but then it's going to take longer, whatever. Um, but also, there was a prominent American obstetrician, Charles Miggs, at the time. Who warned against trying to stop the natural and physiological forces that the divinity has ordained for us yeah. to enjoy or to suffer? Us, meaning women, <laughs> I mean, well, they us, Mr. Miggs, Dr. Miggs, and um, so. But finally, uh, in eighteen fifty-three, before the birth of her eighth child, she is in la- she is allowed to inhale chloroform for 53 minutes from a handkerchief. She loved it. <laughs> Describing blessed chloroform, soothing, quieting, and delightful yeah, beyond measure.
1: Yes, she got the chloroform. You know why? She's the Queen of England. That, that does it. She gets, gets the chloroform. That's all it takes.
0: All right, so chloroform, here we come. Yes. Uh, all right, so that wraps it up.
1: Uh, for Tamsin, Dan, read the paper. Well, this uh, is Thompson.
0: <laughs> what am I supposed to say? This is Tamson Granger?
1: That's close enough. And
0: Dan Abuhoff. And we'll be back again next week.
1: See ya.